Hello, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Brain Food Show. My name is Simon. Join with me today, as always, Dave and Hiskey. Dave and Hiskey, how mm-hmm. are you? Doing well, and you? Doing well. Enjoying the weather. It's July. I guess this probably comes out a few days after we record it because, you know, sponsor mm-hmm. obligations. But uh, the weather is fine. It was 30-something degrees yesterday, which I guess doesn't mean much to you, but probably like late 90s in Fahrenheit, I'm just guessing. Oh, well. Yeah, it's that awesome. is hot. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, it's it's pretty it's pretty damn hot. Yeah. yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. What are we talking no one about in Europe, today? No one in Europe on. ever has air conditioners. No, <laughs> we don't have air conditioners. Yeah. I had this discussion. Who was I having this discussion with? I was having it with an American friend recently about air conditioners inside in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we were like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty rare. Like, unless you live in a very modern building, you know, and most of the yeah. buildings are not very modern. It's uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, air conditioning's not just not really a thing, you know? Yeah. And heat pump um, systems are so much more efficient than, you know, for heating as well. Um, that's true. That's true. They're, yeah. they're also not a huge mm-hmm. thing over here. Yet. I've seen yeah. a, I've seen a few of them. I got a quote on doing a heat pump system at, at, a, mm-hmm. at a house that I have. And uh, mm-hmm. it was... I, I looked up the cost, like, in America. Like, I just went onto one of these, you know, these websites. They'll estimate the cost mm-hmm. of things for you. Because I was like, okay, let's just get a ballpark. Because before I go, like, get a local quote or whatever. And then I get a local mm-hmm. quote. And it's like twice as much. And I think it's just because they haven't really penetrated the market yet here. There's not really a lot of competition yeah. for, like, heat pump systems. Sadly, because it's awesome. Yeah. 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 It's like fully looking into it. And I was like, this is the way to go. <laughs> I mean, it is. you put in X amount of kilowatts and you get you know, 3x mm-hmm. amount of kilowatts yeah. in, in cooling. Yeah, whatever. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, speaking of incredible mm-hmm. things, what are we talking about today? We are going to talk about a lot of stuff about diamonds and um, the invention of the synthetic diamond, which is a really interesting story. Um, and just kind of, yeah, some some interesting stuff about diamonds, basically the whole episode today. I'm excited. Well, shall I start us off? I see I see in the notes here there's like housekeeping stuff. The review contest mentioned. Mm-hmm. Have you checked how many reviews mm-hmm. we've got lately? Is it is it a lot? Uh we g- I think we're close to closing in on about 800 of reviews okay. in uh on the American iTunes, I should say. I mean like when you go through the whole thing, I mean there's I don't even know. It's, there's a lot. Um Gambia is really bringing yeah. up the numbers especially yeah. these days. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Gambia. Uh, Br- you know, Britain represent Britain has a few hundred and, you know, all those. So it's climbing up there. We're going to get there to the $1,000 and giving away 1000 then. That's right. So. When we get 1,000 reviews on the US iTunes, we are going to, or Apple Podcasts, I should say, we're going to give away uh, $1,000 Amazon gift card. So that's obviously exciting. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, leave us a review. And just to be clear, it doesn't have to be a good review. You can leave us a bad review mm-hmm. too. And, uh, well, mm-hmm. you've just got as much chance. So if you want to be like one star, this podcast sucks. I mean... That would be mm-hmm. awkward when you win and I have to email you. <laughs> hey, mm-hmm. thanks for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is this labeled appetizer? Normally we have like a, I don't know, like a uh, So I was fact. reading on the reviews and Fred Zombie on uh, Apple uh, iTunes yeah. or whatever you want to call it, uh, suggested that we change the name of the segments to match the brain food theme, you know, food, instead of quick facts, it's uh, appetizer. And I, oh, I okay. like that yeah, idea. I see you so said I food thing here, and I'm like, wait, but this episode's about yeah. diamonds. I don't put it together. Yeah. The show is called Brain Food. Yeah. There you so, go. Yeah, Fred Zombie. Thanks. That was a good suggestion. I think. Um, so I didn't clear it with you first. I just did it. So yeah, no uh, executive decision <laughs> made. Apparently, yeah. I, I, yeah. it seems. Uh, I mean, seems okay. <laughs> yeah. Seems like yeah. an alright idea. I mean, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the appetizer today is the we're going to talk about the Hope Diamond. Um, so a little <laughs> interesting uh, point about it. So it's a for people who don't know it's a forty five point five two carat diamond and it's about 1.1 billion years uh old or so give or take and it's estimated today to be worth a couple hundred million dollars or so but of course you know who knows really because they would have to actually auction it off to see um but is so this after the one it was in the crown of queen elizabeth i don't think so no no it can't be uh because this one um it's just a giant diamond you see like if you see it, it seems uh when i've seen it, it's got like a nice little um i don't know people can google the the image of it um but it's currently at the, I believe, the National Museum of Natural History still has it. But in either event, it was owned by various people for about four centuries, you know, past hands I'm sorry, and stuff I, I just buy. Googled it. It's another very famous diamond that's in the crown, the oh. Koh-i-Noor diamonds, which is... Oh, okay, uh, how big is that one? Uh, give me a sec. I just saw it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's this... Wait, hang on. The 105 carat Koh-i-Noor diamond. Whoa. But then, Whoa. hang on. But this one's 45.5 carat, and I thought this was the biggest yeah. one. No, that's 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 crazy. That's ginormous. Um, so, anyways, the Hope Diamond here has been passing hands for about four centuries to different private owners and whatnot until 1958, when Harry Winston, who owned it, he decided to give it to the National Museum of Natural History for part of their gem collection. But the issue, of Pretty course, nice is you have gift. this. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I got to start insane, a national I'm, museum. I mean, I'd probably show it a good tax write-off, I suppose, um, of some sort. Uh, so the uh, the issue, of course, is how do you get this insanely valuable thing to the museum? And you might think, well, maybe they'll use like some sort of security, you know, transport firm or something like super high security, like armed guards, the whole thing. But instead, Winston simply put it in a box and mailed it, just a standard mail, through the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, to keep insurance to- on it. <laughs> No, yeah, no, I'm sure. Yeah, because yeah, that would get some red flags. But um, yeah, and anyone who's used, I don't know, maybe it was different back then in the 1950s. But I used to own like a t-shirt, uh, a t-shirt screen printing shop in college, and uh, I can tell you, they would lose like one in every ten packages that Dude, I would mail. Would just I, I get this all the time. I go nuts at our sponsors when they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we shipped out like three things," and I'm like, "If you didn't use FedEx, I'm gonna lose my shit." And they're like, no, 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 we sent it USPS. And I'm great. I'm like, great. Well, it's going to be stuck in some place called Jamaica Bay for about a month. Yeah. And then yep, it's going yep. to slowly make its way across the ocean where it'll probably get lost. And then it'll get stuck yeah. in customs here for about a month. And we'll be doing a spot around December. And it's like, yeah. oh my God. But then again, <laughs> dude, someone sent something via UPS. <laughs> like, I won't say which sponsor it was, but I got the, the I found out, you know, the, the, the cost of shipping. They overnighted uh-huh. it from the States. The bill, the, the shipping mm-hmm. bill was over $400. Whoa. And the product's worth about $30. <laughs> That's what, I, I mailed that one it. to you because it, was, it wasn't clear whether the one from the sponsor was going to get there at all. And uh, yeah. so I mailed the one they sent me to you. And I used like the slow shipping. And this thing, this item was about a $5 probably. And I spent like $200 to send it to you. <laughs> And Wait. the people were like, "What? Why are you sending this?" And I, I was like, "It's it's for a sponsor. It needs to get there." Uh, and uh, yeah, they were like, "Well, oh." And then they wanted me to open it, and I was like, "Well, it kind of needs to be like an unboxing." So I don't want I I don't because they wanted to know like exactly what was in there, and I was like, "I'm not 100 percent sure." But then I had to open it, but I did it carefully, and then like resealed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, was this kinda... um just? I don't want to give away the sponsor because we probably shouldn't you know talk about yeah. the specific the specifics <laughs> is this something that i would eat yes this is, is absurd yeah <laughs> okay is it I, got the the one, one? I got your one like two days later 
I got yeah, the yeah. one from the actual sponsor like last week. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a month late. <laughs> well, it's good because they actually and, they um, re-upped, so there's another spot. Oh, they did? Excellent. Well, I don't actually have it because um, it got stuck oh, at customs. Because, uh, you know, oh. FedEx or uh, UPS will clear stuff through customs for you, and then they'll yeah. bill the sender. And uh, yeah. uh, this... Also, I'm struggling with the... the um, this is too into the weeds. Let me just stick to what we were talking about. The one yeah. that they sent via USPS, you, you know, the regular yeah. post service. Yeah. It uh, just gets stuck in customs and they send, mm-hmm. you know, you first of all, when something gets stuck in customs, I get a signed for letter, right? And because my postman is a lazy bum, um, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, okay, you weren't home when you were supposed to sign for this letter. It's like, dude, I am home. Like, it's my office. Where do you think I am? Like, it's it's Wednesday at three that you're trying to get me yeah. to sign. And it's like, yeah, so you have to go collect it from the post office. So I go, mm-hmm. and you don't know what it is, right? So I'm like, okay, I go to the post office. And there's the letter there. And you stand in line. And then you pick up the letter. And then you have to show them your ID and sign for this thing. And then you open it up. And inside, it's just like 15 pages of documents from customs asking you to fill out all of this stuff. And it's all in check because I live in, in Prague. And I'm like, all right, well, I mean, I speak a bit of Czech, but I'm like, oh, most of this is very confusing to me because it's a lot of legal terms. And mm-hmm. so I just, uh, and they're like, yeah, you have to fill out all these forms. And I just don't. And then they send me another letter and then I don't <laughs> fill that out either. And then they return it to yeah. sender. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, so I just, I just gave up. I just don't get stuff from them anymore. And the yeah. sponsors just have to deal with it, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyways, I'm sorry. Rant over. We? Yes, carry on. Rant, sure. yes. I've probably, uh, I've probably, we've probably had this rant on the podcast before, but every few months it comes up, and I'm like, oh God, why? Yeah. yeah. Um, U.S. Postal Service. That's what he sent oh. it to, and uh, yeah. So uh, he Wait, told me when the that evenings- guy when. Sorry, I know we're just getting back to that. What does going postal mean? In my mind, that's where someone like mm-hmm. shoots up a post office, right? Because they're really angry. Yeah. Is that someone yeah, because that- they've had a bad experience with the mail? Or was this something else? I have a feeling I it, believe was it was just a postal uh, worker, I right? think it was started with the postal worker. There was like a, a couple, uh, maybe it was even just one incident that got, I don't know. I feel like it was Because like I believe it could be disgruntled people who've received packages or not received packages. Like, that makes me literally on- Not really, that's a joke. I'm not going to go on some sort of terrorist spree. <laughs> Uh, when I first started today, I found out that was actually one of the first uh, articles was on like the origin of going postal, and I, I don't remember it. <laughs> I feel like it was about like, this. Yeah, I don't know if we actually ever made a video about it, but it was uh, there was an article on it in like you know oh, that man. I did in like 2010 or something, uh, or 2009 or whatever it was. But yeah, I don't remember. I feel like it was a postal worker in like the 1990s or something. There was a thing like where he shot up the place, and then I don't know, maybe there was a repeat. I don't really remember. But yeah, that was the origin of the the going postal uh you know thing which we also did um so you had the the melee or whatever people who would do that same sort of thing if you remember what what episode was that the uh the dance mania one that was a pretty good episode people should go check that out it's a similar type of thing um oh wait people wait how's it similar oh because we covered that uh the case of the um what is it uh Running amok, running amok. That's what it was. They they run amok, and that is basically uh, it was, uh, right, the, the then a, uh, the equivalent of uh, going postal. And um, but but they actually didn't. You don't if you can survive the event, you don't actually really get in trouble because they just believed it was like a demon possessed you, um, and so people would. But most Sounds people likely. didn't survive the thing because um, you know they would they would end up someone would kill them while they were trying to kill everyone. So um, in any event, 
Going back to the Dude, whole diamond. That's a thing. lame excuse. Like, what happens? I was a demon. It's definitely yeah. a demon. Yeah. I was possessed. Definitely. Okay. Yep. <laughs> cool. Um, so he, no uh, Winston tells the Evening Star, Washington, um, in Washington D.C., after it was safely delivered via just a standard mail through the U.S. Postal Service. Oh wait, is this a quote? I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the safest quote. way to mail chips. <laughs> I was still thinking about this things getting stuck in Jamaica Bay. I was trying to come up with a clever joke. <laughs> shouldn't try so hard <laughs> it's the safest way to mail gems i've sent gems all over the world that way and they're all in jamaica yeah. <laughs> yeah they do i know it always sticks in jamaica i always see drew's always like where hey what, have you got where the package is and jamaica I track bay? it and it's like jamaica why is everything every there <laughs> yep yep um so this was actually not the only time this particular diamond was transported in such limited security. In 1962, so not that many years after he donated it, the National Museum of Natural History went ahead and lent it over to the Louvre for an exhibition there. And uh, they just gave it to some to, uh, to a Smithsonian mineralogist, George Switzer, to just carry in his pocket. Um, and he did actually put it in a pouch, you know, a little protective pouch in his pocket. And then uh, the only sort of extra security that he did there was he did put a safety pin to uh, secure it to the inside of his pocket just to make sure it didn't fall out at some point during well, the trip. That's good. But yeah, at least he did that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. This was mm-hmm. very extended version um, because of my rants. I apologize. This is interesting. I should stop ranting so much. Um, and also. <laughs> hero usps getting that everywhere wait this guy was just a he just took it with him right yeah just put it in his pocket and just carried it uh i assume i feel Uh, like that's gonna be an issue like i don't know whenever you go through the airport there's always that sign hey remember to declare if you've got over ten thousand euros in cash on you and i'm like well Well, one i don't but i bet that diamond counts (laughs) yeah this was in 1962 though they probably you know he probably could have been carrying like a bomb and no one would have cared (laughs) (laughs) this is very blase also why loads of planes crashed <laughs> yeah 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 um oh so uh speaking of uh i'm trying to come up with a transition but i don't have one yeah. maybe i could learn how to come up with a to great come. transition using yeah, oh today's monster skillshare that's right yep. this episode of the brain food show is brought to you by skillshare what is skillshare it's an online learning community of creators with thousands of classes in design business, coming up with clever transitions, and more. That last one's not a guarantee. Unlike some websites where you have to pay for individual classes with a premium membership from Skillshare, you get unlimited access. You can take as many as you want, which is nice. Uh, I've often said to you, David, I think on these ad reads, that, uh, you know, there are other options out there when you're like, there's there's like one class that I want to take, but I really just need, you know, part 17 where I want to learn this specific thing. And obviously, if you've got to pay for, you know, the whole course, that sucks. But with Skillshare, it's unlimited access. So you're just like, well, I'm just going to take part 17 and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to go watch another course about something else. It's great. It's like a it's like a buffet of learning. I don't think that's, I don't think they describe themselves as that, but it's how I see it. It's like a buffet of mm-hmm. learning. But, you know, not one of those cheap buffets. It's like a high quality <laughs> buffet. I should get back to the point so they're going to have a go at me again. I've talked about some classes I've taken before, and I'd still recommend those. I did this email productivity class from Alexander Samuel. Dude, I know your inbox is a mess. Your inbox is always a mm-hmm. mess because you always complain always. about it. You're always like, hey, Simon, I know it's been two months since you sent me this email. Well, and, I finally got back to you. <laughs> you well, should take you this. Always, <laughs> if it's always like the fourth or fifth time you've bumped something, like five yeah, months dude. later, I'll be like, <laughs> I'll respond. <laughs> 
after a while, I'm just like, bubbity bump, bubbity bubbity bump. <laughs> and then eventually yeah, you get true. back to me, dude, it's you got to take this email productivity class from Alexander Samuel. <laughs> I was the same way. And then I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to start using labels like a proper person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. start putting things in order. I, I even deleted a whole bunch of old emails the other day. And I was like, I felt so free. I downloaded them all using something called Google Takeout. And then I was like, mm -hmm. great. Now I don't have to pay the 20 bucks a year to Gmail or whatever because I was so massively over the data limits. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, there you go. You can save money with taking a Skillshare class. I didn't even put that together. I'm a genius. <laughs> uh, anyway, join more than 7 million creators learning with Skillshare. Skillshare is giving away two months of premium membership to help you explore your creativity. I don't think that email management is particularly exploring your creativity, but you know, there's other stuff as well. Um, mm -hmm. Just go to skillshare.com forward slash brain food and uh, you'll get those two months for free. Also, it's also super affordable, 10 bucks a month. I think that's if you sign up for a year. Look, either way, it's not expensive. Just go check it out, skillshare.com forward slash brain food. Let's get into mm -hmm. it. Oh, dude, main course. This is the just so course. clever. Did you title this bit The Bill? I see like the Skillshare yeah, yeah. labeled as the Skillshare bill. is called the bill. Yeah, usually it comes at the end, but we make people prepay. Um, well, so. also, I, isn't the bill how we say it in Britain? Don't you say the check? Because I feel like the most American phrase ever is check, please, when you finished your meal. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but you could say the bill too. I mean, yeah, check, check, the check. Yeah, people say that totally. Okay. Check, please. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Main course today. So we're going to start mm. by talking a little bit about uh, when humans first started, you know, discovering diamonds and when they actually became like a valuable thing, which actually um, took a long time. So diamonds first discovered by humans uh, seems to be around 700 or 800 BC in India by the Dravidian people. And a fun fact, this is where we get why we say we measure diamonds in uh, the unit of weight for of carrots. Uh, is actually from this because they would weigh diamonds in relation to the seeds of the carob tree. Um, so that's where we get that from. But pretty much if you look through the most of history, uh, the vast majority of time uh, references to diamonds where they weren't the sparkly things, you know, they weren't cut and polish them and all that like we do today. They tended to be quite dull and not, um, you know, like all dazzling and everything because mm. that process actually does. It's kind of pretty labor intensive at cutting and polishing, which is actually where the sort of the real um, a lot of the real value of diamonds comes from rather than just sort of, you know, valuing them because it's a diamond. Um, so it wouldn't be. So we even have like when you look um, fast forwarding all the way to the 19th century and they did find like some diamond deposits in like Brazil and stuff like that to and then including that. So the worldwide supply of these gem diamonds, these really high quality um, things is only a few pounds per year at this point um, in the, all the way in the 19th century. And that changed in 1869. So what happened there is so prior to 1869, South Africa's main exports were just like wool and sugar and things like that. Nothing sort of uh, semi-exclusive to the region. But then um, in, a few years earlier in, in, in 1866, a young uh, Boer, would you pronounce that like Boer? I think it's Boer, but I'm not sure. Burr? Isn't your, yeah, isn't your like dad from South Africa? Yeah, My dad's from Zimbabwe. Oh, all right. But, uh, he's not Boer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, that's just apparently a, a term for a Dutch or German descent South African farmer back then, I guess. All right. So um, anyways, so they he yeah, found... Boer. Uh, yeah. Boer. Boer. Oh, if you're American, it's Boer. If you're Boer. British, it's Boer. There you go. Interesting. 
Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sure someone I'll will just, be like, you're saying it, boar is boar, and I'll be like, oh, for God's sake! <laughs> I'm just going to continue probably pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, so, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, so he found boar. a... <laughs> no one cares. Tw- yeah, 22-carat diamond just sitting okay. there in a stream bed near the Val River in modern-day um, South Africa. Just sitting mm. there. That's kind of a nice find. So, three years later, an 83-carat diamond was found by a shepherd in the Orange God, River damn. in South Africa. Yeah, and that one's uh, nicknamed the Star of South Africa. And this one was the one that touched off the like the rush of... This is when like all the European powers were like, let's just go ahead and take over Africa, shall we? Um, uh, and so... The British, of course, leading the way in there in South Africa. So, um, yeah, so the, pretty quickly there's four major mines dug, uh, dry dug. And so the largest, of course, is the Kimberley Mine, which is one of the most famous in the world. And it's called, uh, nicknamed the Big Hole. And so this one... Creative. Yeah, so diamonds were just, like, coming out of there, um, coming out of there like crazy, like tons of them a year. And so you can see... Uh, Oh, this actually kicked off the uh, one of the early conflicts. December of 1880 to March of 1881 was the first Anglo-Boer War. Boer War that the British, of course, ended up winning. Uh, and so this, it was just tons of conflicts like this, just a land grab, you know, because the value of land uh, for, for all these diamonds. The problem was, of course, is so you got all these battles going on and you got all this, like, people conflict and you got... A ton of diamonds like the the you know these things that were kind of valuable because there wasn't like a there was a pretty um limited supply at the time now there's not really limited supply there's just like amazing amounts of diamonds coming out of these mines and like big ones and everything uh so this this made people quite nervous and so the value of the diamond and the land and everything started dropping uh like crazy and and um yeah so uh, diamonds became like more like a semi-precious stone like nothing crazy valuable enter british native cecil rhodes so he gets his start uh, renting water pumps to miners and stuff in 1869, all the way back then, uh, at the beginning of this diamond rush. And then as he was going, he just kind of accumulated some money and started getting some um, and just started buying up little small mining operations and that, that were selling basically for nothing because of the oversaturation of diamonds and whatnot. So he was just getting him a steal of a deal. And so he continued doing this practice. And uh, the most famous mine, of course, that he bought was the old De Beer mine, which was owned at the time by Johannes Nicholas De Beer and Diedrich Arnaldus. Um, so let's fast forward to 1888. Diamond mm-hmm. prices are falling like crazy still. There's very few miners left. Um, there is Rhodes and his De Beers mine as the main one. And so all the remaining mine owners basically said, all right, our industry is going to collapse, so why don't we all just join together? We'll consolidate to form one giant company, and this, of course, uh, brought about the De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited. I know this um, story. It's so sketchy. <laughs> it is. It is, because they, they, they followed this up by basically creating a lot of subsidiaries and making it seem like to, to the world at large that there were many diamond companies, and not just like one overseeing mm. it all. And they started, you know, they kind of seemed to be competing with each other on prices and everything like that and sale. But it was all, of course, uh, owned by one company. Just, just nobody really knew it at the time. And so, yeah, yeah they, they could then control completely the supply and, um, and all that. So and set the prices to what they wanted. And so and so it actually turned out by the time Cecil Rhodes died in 1902, De Beers owned 90 percent of the world's uh, diamond production, not just South Africa's, but the entire world. Um, so. Does it, does it, I mean, I'm sure we get into this, doesn't it? Isn't this still like to this day? I guess we'll cover this. We'll get to this later, I guess. But. We'll get to this, uh, yeah, in, in a bit. But um, so crazy. So there was, 
there was various business shenanigans. So the Oppenheimer brothers, they actually bought like a small mine, for instance. And then they were kind of to get sort of they kind of joined De Beers in a weird way. Like instead of selling out to De Beers, they just sort of invested in De Beers and then eventually kind of took it over. Um, Is this Oppenheimer uh, like Oppenheimer Oppenheimer? Yeah, the, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, Ernest Oppenheimer was the was the main one with this diamond thing. Um, so yeah, by by um, they basically there's you know various business shenanigans, many shady and not awesome, but that kept them on top. But fast forward to 1938, and the diamond industry was again on the decline because there were um, more mines discovered in like um, good mines in Australia, Siberia, Western Africa, and whatnot. And of course, the Great Depression was reducing sales. So bring er- Ernest Oppenheimer. He sends his son Harry to New York, to the ad agency NWIR, and they're basically, to come up with a way, they, they realized that the U.S., they didn't, U.S. wasn't buying a lot of diamonds, so how can we change that? And so they came up, they figured the best thing to do was to tie diamonds to love, and if you could tie diamonds to love, then, you know, people would people would buy it and, of course, spend uh, obscene amounts of money because it's sort of um, a representative of your love. So that is what exactly the ad campaign they came up with. To And they even had a series of lectures to high school students across the nation uh, talking about Diamond. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but I don't know. When I was in high school, they had like those ring, the ring manufacturers, the high school rings would always come around like to the seniors and be like, talk up. Oh, high school ring. It's going to be the thing you like keep your whole life and blah, blah, blah. Even though, of course, nobody cares about it like one year after they graduate high school. Wait, um, but for real? For real. That's like a real thing. And they're just like, they, they have like whole lectures to students and everything. And it's like, it's going to be the greatest thing ever. And Dude, of course, nobody this cares. Would piss- Do you remember when we went to VidCon? Uh, what, maybe two years ago? Were you there with me that time and Adobe had that presentation? Were you with me that time? Was it in London? Because I didn't go to that one. No, I'm just trying to remember if it was in which one it was. Anyway, Adobe have this big presentation and it's like one of the keynote things talking about some, I don't know, I I was just like, I got nothing else to do. I gotta sit in the back and watch this. And it was basically just Adobe pitching some like bullshit new product they had. And it was just like, (laughs) wait. I'm here at a thing that's pitched as education, but it's essentially like Adobe are just selling oh. me something for an hour. And uh, okay. I just walked out. I was just like, this yeah. is, no, this is not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Adobe, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. yeah. No, if I, um, I, as a high school student, if someone was just there selling me stuff when I'm supposed to be learning, I'd yeah. be like, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I'm yeah. fully out. No. It was uh, super effective. Part of they also newspaper magazines, uh, movies. Of course, they they. Wait, add. hang on. I'm not done on this high school ring thing. I want to know more about. This. Okay. How much do these things cost? Why do you They're have ex- to buy them? Why is it like we have yearbooks at the end? Like I don't know if it's common in the UK, but we had like a yearbook mm-hmm. made, and it was fairly cheap. Uh, it was made uh, at the school. Like some outside company didn't come in and try to sell us some like hundred pound mm-hmm. yearbook. No, yeah, I think that's it was, like twelve that's quid. A- no, it's exactly as it sounds. Like, I mean, they can be super expensive because some some of them they'll put like actual like gems and things in, and uh, they're like usually pretty big and gaudy. Uh, no one ever wears them, obviously, um, ever, uh, <laughs> and no one cares. Do about you have them. one of these? No, I do not have one of these. Uh, how much was I, it? I thought, how much was it to buy it? When like or, or I, like one of your I think contemporaries? They had, they, I think they had cheap ones, but they also had like super expensive ones, and I just, you know, I wait. So you uh, don't. You can hang on. So not everyone gets the same one. There's like different levels of ring you can yeah. buy. Yeah, they the usually will school. have like your. They usually have like your high school, like uh, you know, uh, embossed on it or something. You know, the high school name or like stuff like that. They usually customized somewhat to the each school. 
uh, and whatnot. But at least, I mean, I went to a really small high school. I mean, maybe bigger ones. They all do the same ones. Like they maybe I, don't, I have no idea, but uh, I don't know. I thought I kind of thought they were stupid um, at the time. But some people bought them. Um, Are the schools so. getting a cut of this? Like when they make uh, the students I wouldn't go think and watch so. one of these? Like this is so <laughs> sketchy. It is. <laughs> okay. A bit. Yeah. Um, wow. But apparently back then this was the with the was one of their um, campaigns to get uh, diamond engagement rings. Of course, I suppose you yeah, um, to get it uh, equated with love. And of course, the bigger and more expensive diamond means more love. And so that's where we get like the uh, expression. Also, a diamond is forever was one of these early ad campaigns, and that was that was part of it too. They wanted people um, to basically equate diamonds with being the lasting forever. I mean, they are like old. I, I, well, not the synthetic ones, but you know, the others, they're one to three billion years old. But it turns out diamonds are actually really easy. Like if you just take a hammer to a diamond and just hit, you don't even have to hit it that hard, it'll shatter into dust. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, they can be burnt really easy if you want to, if you want to just take a lighter to one. Uh, they're not really, uh, but they wanted, they wanted to instill this like diamond is forever thing. Um, partially because they also wanted it to be like something, this was an important part of their ad campaign was that once a lot of people, if, if it was like the diamond was the standard thing for like an engagement ring, what's going to happen is that eventually the, the general public is going to have a huge supply of diamonds. And if people are getting divorced or whatever and selling them off, that's going to be a problem for controlling the supply. And De Beers realized this. And so they want it to be like forever. This is something you keep forever. But the, so they wanted people to keep it and just like from generation to generation pass it on. But... But they don't want people using the same ring over and over again. So they also, as part of these ad campaigns, really put out that it's like a, you know, it's like a negative thing to have a, um, to sort of get a used engagement ring, you know, get a used wow. one. And so the negative stigma. No, this was a brilliant ad campaign. The whole thing uh, that they did over years uh, was absolutely brilliant at every <laughs> yeah. level. This is um, incredible. I mean, terrible, yeah. but incredible. Yeah. It was it was really good. And um, yeah, that's actually where you get the I don't know if you have this over there, but um, in America, it's like the oh, a two month salary. That's what you should. That's what you should buy um, for an engagement ring. And that was actually part of an ad campaign. The first ad campaign, it was one month salary. And then they got they bumped it up to two. Um, and it was like the it was like how to turn two month. The, the actual thing was like how to turn two month salary into something forever or something like that. It was something, oh, like, no. Uh, but it doesn't last yeah. forever, and it's like uh, I see it here in the notes. How can, how else can two months' salary last yeah. forever? I don't know. Yeah. Put it in an index funds, and in thirty years <laughs> yeah. when you retire, it'll be worth ten times as much. Yeah. Like that's, that's how. Yeah. Um, Good God. Also, then- I mean, let, uh, let's just do an anti-diamond advert. If you're spending two months of your salary on an engagement ring or a diamond, you're an insane idiot. <laughs> Like, you're an idiot. Um, I don't know how else to put that. Like, you're financially incompetent, especially at an age <laughs> when you're, you know, let's say you're getting engaged to like tw- 20s, late 20s, tw- in your 20s. What What's going on? But, you should be but saving the thing is, for a deposit for a house. You should be the putting thing is, your money in anything else. That's all very rational, but no, even knowing all that, because there is the social stigma of not getting the diamond engagement ring, diamond engagement ring. So even if you know all this, even if both people are like, "Yeah, that's stupid," there's still a little bit of the pressure to do it anyway, uh, just to sort of uh, keep up with societal Dude, expectations. Dude, I've been in a situation. So like, I am married. Yeah. I would, yeah. if my wife was like, oh, "This is this is not two months of your salary," I'd be like, "Yeah, you can fuck right off." Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is insane. That is insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but did you still get a diamond 
engagement. Yes, ring I did, just... but a synthetic diamond. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm not, I'm not uh, buying into this shit. And it's like, if my wife thinks I love her less, well, <laughs> too bad. I mean, <laughs> oh, insanity. Absolute yeah. insanity. So, yes, this this worked. And um, within just a few years, diamond uh, sales were up 55%. And then just like a few few years and firmly tied to love and marriage. Are going to get pissed off at, at me point. for this? For saying that you're financially incompetent if you're spending two months of your salary on a ring? Do you think that's something that's going to draw heat? Like... I, uh, I just feel like it's insane to think otherwise. I really do. Well, I think, I think even the people who do it would probably agree with you, but they would also say there's still reasons to do it, uh, p- potentially. Um, I mean, obviously, it depends on your partner and everything like that, but um, some people Bizarre. aren't going to care in the slightest. But uh, if they do care, even if you think it's ridiculous, uh, you know, it is kind of an um, important time not to, I don't know, make them feel ridiculous um, for their likes, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh my yes I'll so like, if 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 your pretend if your wife-to-be complains about the ring you buy her you know check yourself yeah before yeah. you wreck yourself. Uh, <laughs> um so yeah that as as stated there was this so they didn't want people to buy you or to buy used diamonds and all this the whole ad campaign and so on this sort of supply and demand everything harry oppenheimer commented on this in 1971 Dude, there is absolutely no chance I'm anywhere in the notes where that link is. I've been... Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I, no, I've, <laughs> I've been skipping all around okay, too, so go. I just had to scroll down a bunch. I had to scroll a ton because, uh, yeah, we've just been talking instead of reading. I was, looking up, I was looking up things on BBC about like whether we do this in the UK and all of that stuff. I'm sorry. Okay, but you've highlighted it for me. Uh, okay. Who even said this? Harry Oppenheimer. Wait, is this the same Oppenheimer? You said it's Oppenheimer, but is this like bomb Oppenheimer? Like are these this is this was the the son that actually did part of the there was kind of sent to go work on the ad campaign with N.W. Iyer, uh, so Ernest Oppenheimer's son Harry Harry Oppenheimer. So he's yeah, uh, but wait, older. that's not my question. Like Oppenheimer mm-hmm. is like I don't know any other Oppenheimer other than the dude who was working on the atomic bomb. Is this the same dude? It's about the same time. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was the same family. I don't know. That'd be um, cool. Anyway, <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot there. <laughs> Yeah, I have no oh, idea. a degree of control is necessary for the well-being of the industry. Oh, come on, Harry. <laughs> That's some bullshit right there. Not because produ- production is excessive or demand is falling, but simply because of wide fluctuations in price, which have rightly or wrongly been accepted as normal in the case of most raw materials. It would be destructive to, of public confidence in the case of a pure luxury such as gem diamonds, of which large stocks are held in the form of jewelry by the general public. Uh... Mm-hmm. There's there's mm-hmm. an excuse if I ever heard one. Yeah, it's like um, why so, are you doing this? It's for the public good. Yeah. is it though, Harry? Uh, <laughs> is it? So De Beers, they continued these came and naturally it worked so well in the U.S. They spread. So like for instance in Japan in 1967, diamond engagement rings were only five percent of engagement rings at the time. But within one decade, they had risen to almost 60% uh, of, of um, them, and they've continued to rise. And obviously, it's kind of the, the standard. I don't know. Is it the standard, like, pretty much everywhere in the, you know, Western world, at least? And also, I mean, in this case, the Eastern. Like, is that, is there, like, countries yeah, I that think so. don't do diamond rings, engagement rings? Uh, I mean, as far as I know, it is here in Czech. It is in the UK. Okay. Um, right. Definitely. Well, well. Uh, so... Anyway, that now one thing you asked about earlier I'm just is jealous of De Beers. I mean, this is yeah, this, this is mwah. yeah, brilliant uh, on their part. But 
They actually a series of lawsuits very recently and a lot of diamond supply nations sort of rebelling against De Beers. They no longer, contrary to popular belief, have the, the stranglehold that they used to have. But at this point, it doesn't really matter because they did such a good job uh, that, that you now it's just like a, it's still diamonds are super valuable for that reason. Although if you ever try to sell one, you'll find very quickly that they're not actually valuable at all. Like, go ahead and try to sell one and see how much you get for it. Um, unless you're like an official, you know, diamond dealer or whatever. Um Oh yeah, yeah. Because they made the used ones like um, worth less. Yeah, they 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 don't usually uh, sell for much. Uh, yeah. So where are we now? Um, okay, this brings us to Howard Tracy Hall. So who is Howard Tracy Hall? So naturally, given the high price uh, or high sale price of diamonds uh, from the official dealers, they're just crystallized form of carbon. So, so I mean, like, we should be able to make these, right? And so this is what people have been trying to do um, for, for many decades, or or should say Dude, up I to this. I feel like, you know how people were trying to make gold forever? Like, you know, the yeah. alchemists working on the gold. How crazy is it that, except with diamonds, we can totally do it? Yeah. <laughs> and that guy did it, though. What, what was that one guy's name? That actually, actually made gold. He was the first. He finally yeah. achieved. It was like in the 80, 1980s or something. He finally yeah, did it Yeah, but it was just like, because like he was slamming, um, he was using... Yeah. Um, Oh God! What's that CERN particle thing called? Accelerator. Uh, Part- a particle, particle accelerator, accelerator to do it. Yeah. But then we we calculated how much it would cost to make like uh yeah. you know an actual you know yeah. attainable amount of gold, and it was like some quadrillion dollars or something yeah. insane. But he did it. Um, it was kind of cool. He did um, it. He did it. Yes. Yeah. So people have obviously for for a while for quite some time. Um, before it was actually done, trying to make it because it's just it's just crystallized form of carbon. Where in this case, uh, like sort of the natural one is is um, extreme pressure. It's about a little over seven hundred thousand pounds per square inch. So you know whatever that is in metric, and heat. Good God. Uh, yeah, uh, sixteen hundred and fifty degrees to two thousand three hundred seventy. So naturally, it, it's formed way way underneath the the Earth's uh, crust and just um, you know pressure and heat over time, and then eventually it percolates its way to the surface. And so pretty much all um, diamonds that you have today that aren't synthetic, where they're one to three billion years old, which kind of makes it like a little bit like, well, that's kind of cool. Like that's uh, this thing is like a billion years old, you know, that you're, you know, putting in your ring or whatever. Um, but in any event, True. so so this Harry or Howard Tracy Hall, he was born in 1919 in Ogden, Utah. And his family lived on a farm, a remote in um, in Utah, and so they'd have to go into town. And when they would, for supplies and whatnot, they would uh, basically, the kids, the hall kids, would be dropped off at the library. And then they would just kind of read there while their parents went around and shopped and everything. So it was there that Hall learned of Thomas Edison, and he became, he wanted to become an inventor then. Uh, and he wanted to work for General Electric, uh, Edison's company. So... Um, fast forward, we're fast forwarding now to 1948. And so he had, uh, he received, um, undergrad and, um, undergrad degree before the World War II. And then during World War II, uh, ra- he was a radar and electronics technician in the U S Navy. And then after he got a PhD in chemistry and then immediately went from there to working for GE's laboratory in unpronounceable town name in New York, um, Schenectady. Yeah. Yeah. That's, he nailed it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so they hired him actually for their project Super Pressure. Um, they wanted a chemist for part of their project Super Pressure, and this was a project to create the world's first synthetic diamonds. And so, GE spends one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in nineteen fifty-one. So that's about one point one seven. Oh, sorry, that was uh, my pronunciation dictionary. Schenectady. Schenectady. All right, not a Whoops. Sh- oh. accident. Oh shit! Hold on, I accidentally clicked on Schengen, which we don't want. <laughs> that was the next one in the <laughs> dictionary. <laughs> All right. um, 
So it's about $1.17 million today is what they spent in 1951 dollars, $125,000. Uh, so they basically... I'm building this 25-foot-tall press capable of generating 1.6 million pounds per square inch of pressure. And they had to build a three-story building uh, to house it. And then uh, two years, it took two years to construct this press, and they finally finished it. And then they just started doing experiments with it, and it just didn't work. Like, a failed experiment after failed experiment, they could not make diamonds with it. So Hall, he goes, he's, you know, part of this team, and he goes to his superiors and said, Hey, I can do this better, and I can do it for under $1,000. Um, and okay. so, and yeah, I, I think I can do this. And, um, he wanted to use a 35 year old Watson Stillman press, just one that you could, anyone could go out and buy. And he just wanted to make a few modifications to it. And he said, I can, I can make these modifications for under a thousand bucks. Whole thing. I will make diamonds, synthetic diamonds. And they, they told him, no, it can't be done. Um, so they were going to go with our big, you know, uh, huge project one. So he, he, you know, didn't care that his bosses said no. Instead, he said, some costs there, GE, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, all right, I'll just do it then. Um, so on his spare time, he went ahead and convinced one of his uh, a friendly machinists at GE. After hours, they would, you know, stick and, and basically help him build his or make these modifications to the machine that he had in mind. And he called it his belt apparatus for the machine, which was the modification. Um, and so the, uh, he did at one point realize that the steel available, he had available, it wouldn't work. It wasn't uh, strong enough. So he needed some carbaloy which is 6% cobalt and 94% tungsten carbide, and that would be um, be able to withstand the pressures good enough. And um, he did convince one of his supervisors to go ahead and get GE to buy that, uh, the amount he needed, so Herman Leibathsky. And so they went ahead and bought him at least that part of it. Uh, they spent the money on that. And so they finally, he completed the machine with the help of the machinist, his modifications to it. And again, this is just like a machine anyone could go out and buy with, and, just, and the modifications weren't like super significant. Um, and so he did do a, a handful this of tests. should be your next practical video, dude. You know, yeah. you're doing these practical videos like the shaking cans yeah. video. Yeah, you someone make your own belt machine. Yeah. yeah, someone did this. They looked up his, you know, his patent eventually. That well, GE's patent, and uh, someone actually has made and it worked um, using this exact his exact setup. So that's awesome. Han- handful of failed runs. He finally uh, just kind of tweaking things a little bit. On December 16th, 1954, he was working alone. Everyone else had gone home for Christmas, you know, the Christmas holiday. He was just there working by himself. And he, uh, after one experiment, he opened the pressure chamber and he says, My hands began to tremble. Uh, My heart beat rapidly. My knees weakened and no longer gave support. My eyes had caught the flashing light of dozens of tiny dot 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 crystals (laughs) crystals <laughs> yeah and so then he, uh, yeah this i swear this dude has missed a trick like i don't know what's going on but if i was in his position and it was like oh shit okay well first thing i need to do is kill the machinist and then i need to <laughs> take this machine put it in a garage somewhere and not mention it for a couple of years then go somewhere change my name and start absolutely cranking out diamonds <laughs> Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Like, Look what I made. <laughs> yeah, it, this is exactly. I mean, yeah, we'll get into Look, it. If you just, he he should have done you what you suggested. The gold thing, dude. Yeah. If you were like, if you were like, maybe alchemists have succeeded at making gold, <laughs> and they're just like quietly getting rich mm-hmm. and churning <laughs> out their secret gold magical potion <laughs> recipe somewhere. Yeah. You wouldn't tell anyone. You definitely wouldn't tell anyone. Yeah. 
Yeah, especially if you work for a company that you've done it on your own hours, but you have used their shop, you know, their machinist and some of their equipment. So they're going to take and they're going to say it's theirs. Um, also, it's but, GE. Isn't like the meme about Thomas Edison that he stole yeah. everyone's inventions? <laughs> yeah, like, and this is, this is exactly kind of what's going to happen here. So he, he did run this experiment several more times just to make sure it, it wasn't a fluke. And each time the same result. And then just an independent verification on New Year's Eve. He got one of his uh, fellow chemists, Hugh H. Woodbury, to come. And he, and he just gave him the method to do. And then he said, just do it and see if it works. Uh, it once again worked. Uh, and then at that point, he felt comfortable. He informs his bosses that he had done it. He had uh, used what this little doing, cheap, man? Yeah, cheap device that in modification. Yeah, and they they obviously were skeptical. So this is something you could build in, you know, someone could build in their garage or whatever if they knew had the know how, you know, the machinist know how. At so. that point, I'd just be like, okay, guys, you're right. I didn't do it. I quit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's going to quit in a little bit, as you'll see. Uh, so oh my God. they did. They they were extremely skeptical. So he he went ahead and said, "All right, I'm going to just leave the building, and you guys can run the experiment. Here's the steps, uh, and and do it." And they did it, and it worked, and it was repeat. And once they determined it was indeed repeatable, they went ahead and GE announced on February 14th, 1955, the company had created the world's first synthetic diamonds, but. They didn't want to say it was Hall and his little cheapo machine that did it for obvious reasons. They didn't want people to realize that it's actually, you know, if, they, if people could get a hold of his patent, they could just do it themselves. They didn't need this massive three-story thing. And so they said it was part of their super or project super pressure thing. And they said it was made from that huge machine that didn't work. Um, and they gave the whole team the credit. And he was just one of the guys, not even emphasized. Hall was a, a, oh, as, nice. as a maid. So they didn't even really give him credit publicly or anything. And then privately, they knew. And internally in the company, everyone knew what had actually happened. But so they, you know, you'd think, okay, at least they rewarded Dude, him there. You no like a promotion. No one said to him at some point, like, what you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, if my friend came to me, I'd be like, you, why are you telling me? Like, <laughs> yeah. So, What's wrong with you? You think like maybe a promotion, maybe maybe a really large bonus? No, no. You invented no. making diamonds. Yeah. <laughs> what and sort of promotion? It's like yeah, you got a promotion, so you're making like I don't know what is the nineteen. You're making like three grand more a year. Be yeah. Like, Dude, yeah. I invented diamonds. I invented yeah. making diamonds. Yes. Yeah. So they gave him a twenty-five dollar bonus, about two hundred dollars mm. today, uh, and as you might expect. Oh, it wasn't even a few grand. It was just a no. one-off bonus. Of one-off bonus. This was the oh, kind of dear. the last slap in the face of he. So he didn't get any credit for it. Which yeah, had he gotten credit, like this is Nobel Prize worthy right here. Uh, if it would have been him and not just like a team thing and everything, and if the sort of the details were were widely known, and so he was just like, you know what, I'm out. Uh, so he was part of the team that developed the diamond, you know, the synthetic diamond. And so, you know, he had plenty of job offers and everything like that, even though even people didn't really know the, the full story that he had actually done it. Um, but he did take a he became a professor at Brigham Young University and to work in chemistry and the director of research. But and also he wanted to continue working on his synthetic diamond thing. But the problem was the U.S. government was like, wait a minute. No, this is this invention's too important, too important to allow you know, this sort of independent research, we need to bottle this up. And so they put a gag order on the apparatus, how it was made uh, and everything like that. So he couldn't talk about it. So he couldn't write research papers about his, you know, if he wanted to read and he couldn't research on it. So what he and if he did, he could go to prison and, uh, you know, huge, huge monetary fines. So instead, within one year, just one year, he invented a completely different machine of his own of his own making called the tetrahedral press, which then didn't yeah. technically uh, violate the gag order on the original thing. 
And then he went ahead and said, okay, I made this whole thing and it totally worked. And it also didn't violate GE's patent. So now he had it. Um, he had his own patent and everything like that. But this did not sit well with the government. When he first came out with it and everything, they threatened him with two years imprisonment, $10,000 fine, about $88,000 today was what they were going to slap him. And they also slapped a gag order on this device. So he could also not talk about it and publish research papers and all that. Um, so yeah, fine. But he... They, the government did not follow through on this, and, and soon enough, they actually lifted the secrecy order on the machines, which allowed him to then start publishing papers. He ended up publishing like 150 peer-reviewed papers on the subject, um, got grants like over a million dollars, and even started his own mega diamond company um, making synthetic diamonds. Um, and he ultimately retired, a life of a tree farmer, passed away in July of 2008, actually, uh, at the age of 88. And in later years, um, so when asked in an interview, he was asked, what's the most important accomplishment in your life? Hall stated... Home and family, that's the most important. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it has a happy ending. But yeah. I mean, I, f I feel like there was a... I guess he doesn't care. Like, he just doesn't, you know. It's cool. Yeah. He's cool. He's cool with yeah. it. He he's had a good career. Not. And now everybody knows. Everybody knows now like, that, he, that he's the one who did it. So, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Dude. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I still feel a bit like he missed yeah. a trick with that whole... Well, know, it's like inventing. the... The guy who Basically invented the microwave, like the, the microwave, you know, the microwave oven. The radar guy, dude, yeah. What was it, like $2 bonus is what he got for that or something like that? It was, it was really weak, yeah. But then yeah. again, also, that was a bit different because he was on Raytheon's time, right? And yeah. he was working on a Raytheon project and he yeah. stumbled across something really cool. And yeah. then it's like, okay, it was like, well, if, you know, if I'm Raytheon, if I'm paying my scientists to like putter around in the lab and figure shit out, yeah. and then they're like, I invented something. And it's like, all right, well, you know, you work for me. So that's mine. Yep. Whereas yep. this guy, they'd been like, no, 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 you can't do it. No, 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 you haven't done it. We're not interested. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, dude. That's like, oh, yeah. And that's like the post-it note was similar to that, where it was like a continual uh, thing that 3M, I think it was, uh, continued to just be like, eh, no, we don't want to do that. Like, this is stupid. And it took like five yeah. years or something of the guy pushing it before finally they started using it internally. <laughs> and then it sort and of- And now like, what else do yeah. you know 3M for? other than yeah. posting notes tape yeah. maybe well and even when they launched it originally i think it was like in idaho or something it didn't sell and like they they would they finally they were like why isn't this selling no why is no one buying this this is like super useful we use it internally constantly uh and they finally realized people didn't know what to do with it and so then uh, they started just giving away free samples uh throughout the area and then selling it there and then it just took off and yeah now it's one of the top you know office products uh, out it's there, like so. the slinky the, yeah. the dude was this was a tear found out right yeah 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 where the dude who invented the slinky was like he tried putting it in a toy store and no one bought it and yeah. then he demonstrated it in the toy store and yeah. he was they just selling out all the time yeah yeah pretty much um yeah so that so is that's today's, all, that's... today's episode other than we got a couple of reviews to read let me uh let me hit these up oh yeah. dude you ch two five stars um yeah okay hang on let me i was it. just the, these were the two most recent i didn't uh I have to say, I mean, I don't want to brag, but uh, there's a lot of five-star reviews for this They're pretty show, much all, which, uh, all five stars, know, yeah. Totally. <laughs> they are, which sometimes I wonder about because I feel like a good portion of this episode was just me ranting about the Postal Service. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when it's at the beginning of people like, get to the point. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
T Bone one zero zero four says, "Just like Mary Poppins, this show is practically perfect in every way." I get the feeling there's a butt coming, David. Great interaction from the hosts, professionally recorded and produced, top-notch content, as to be as expect as to be expected by David. Naturally, Just, <laughs> what? As to be accepted by David and Simon, come on, like, what the hell? You saying my concept's not top notch? Just <laughs> release cadence, even if it means changing the length of the shows to be more predictable, which is something we're probably going to be doing, which we can yep. talk about, I guess, at some point. Um, yeah, when, probably going to be doing shorter shows, a little bit more yeah. regular schedule. Yeah, that's the plan. All right, and I got authors now. That's working out. That's the kinks. Everyone, I don't know if people listen. I've been working on this for months. Finally, mm-hmm. finally all came together this month, which was actually really good because I had to take a lot of time off this month. Uh, so that worked out. I'm excited, um, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited too because I, I, I seriously freed up um, 80% of my work. So now I can do, there's things. I got things on the docket uh, coming up. So. Got dreams. This boy's got dreams. Yeah, we got things we're working uh, on, including ramping up the podcast. So, yeah. This podcast make you smarter by TJ Shadwell. I like these guys. They're a couple of poor. They're like a couple of poor but smart roommates passing the time, showing how much they know. And you know what? It makes me smarter. The miscellaneous topics give me a broad range of material to not only look smarter in front of my friends, but material for trivial pursuit as well. Entertaining and informative. Exactly what makes podcasts perfect. Why are we poor? Why am I like a poor roommate? I guess I was complaining about diamonds for like a portion of this episode. But that's insane. We often complain about how we lose money on this podcast, which is, you know, we're going to try to fix that. That's That's part of the plan. We're going to fix it. Um, So, yeah. Hopefully, maybe. <laughs> we can yeah, take hopefully. some money off this show. Okay, now I'm seeing where he's coming from. Um, yeah. And why does he think we're smart? <laughs> well, why does he think I'm smart? <laughs> more, more to the point. Oh, um, that's all for the reviews today. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Um, shall, I, shall I wrap things up right here? Mm-hmm. Sounds good. You've been listening to the Brain Food Show. I've been Simon. That's been Davin. Uh, leave us a review. As we said at the beginning, when we get to a thousand reviews on Amazon, on Amazon, this podcast definitely doesn't go out on Amazon. No. Um, on well, iTunes. actually, it it is on uh, Alexa, isn't it? It is. I th- I feel like Drew or somebody told me they asked to play the Brain Food Show on Alexa, and it just did it. I could be wrong. Oh, oh, wow, that's cool. I remember I tried once putting our YouTube show onto to Amazon, mm-hmm. and it was the most painful thing that uh-huh. I think I've ever done in my life. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, no, I, I gave up on that fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I was like, can I find someone to do this for me? And I couldn't even find someone to do it for me. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm out. Sorry, Amazon. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this has been the Brain Food Show. Thank you for watching. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon-ish, maybe, hopefully. Thank mm-hmm. you for listening. <laughs>